many of us do anticipate this time of year when we come together with family and friends. Probably most have a family gathering, maybe Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, um, as your children age and get married, and uh, you have families to contend with, and you know sometimes it's one side of the family, others, sometimes you can't work it out. Life marches on. Um, but there may be some sense that it wouldn't be Christmas without filling in the blank. It wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't have uh, Cindy's amazing monkey bread on Christmas morning. It wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't have, you know, something. It wouldn't be Christmas if so-and-so wasn't here. And we have these ideas in our head, and I, I think it, there's a latency of why that's important. It could be holidays as well, but the other side of this is some of us have family and friends we don't want to be with, right? I mean, none of you, of course, but I don't, yeah, it'd be better off if so-and-so didn't show up for Christmas. It'd be a lot more calm. Uh, I'm, I'm struck by our time in D.C., how many families are on opposite sides of the aisle and I can't imagine being in a family system where you have very strong passions on both sides of the aisle and trying to have a civil holiday. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Just watch the news. It's easier, I guess, to get mad. But some of us have this idea that a Christmas holiday or a New Year holiday has to be, something has to be there. A person has to be there. An experience has to be there. A food has to be there. Or it's not Christmas. I want you to put your thinking cap on with me for a few minutes and go back in time and think about the ancients and what they looked forward to. There was no western Christmas tree. There were no ornaments. There was no gift exchange. There were no white elephants. There were no ugly sweaters. There were no parties. The ancients were looking forward to an ultimate Christmas. They didn't call it Christmas. But the ancients understood things that we would learn from if we reframed, what did the pious, God-fearing Jew, let's call them Christians, what did the Christians of old look forward to? What were they anticipating when it came to what we now call Christmas? Um, I have to confess, years ago I was studying through the book of Genesis. I've taught Genesis like twice now. And there's a commentary by Dr. Alan Ross called Creation and Blessing. And he was one of my professors, a brilliant man. He's at Beeson now in Alabama but um, he wrote this commentary, and chapter 50 of Genesis, he makes some comments that put me in a rabbit hole that I spent hours studying. And that's where this idea of what I want to share with you comes from. And he's talking about Genesis 50, verses 22 and following, and Joseph is dying. And we're going to look at these verses in a moment. But let me read you some of his commentary. It's a bit verbose and long, and I tried to edit it down. It's largely his commentary, but I'm making it a little easier to read. Um, he writes, Joseph died in Egypt after a long and fruitful life of faithful service to God. Like his father before him, he requested his bones be taken out of the land of Egypt and returned. The, the deliverance, he assured them, would take place when God intervened to fulfill the promises of the fathers. The expression, God will surely visit you, we're going to look at that in a moment, God will surely visit you, guarantees the fulfillment of this promise. Now there's a word in Hebrew called visit, and there's a, a lot of detail I'm going to spare you from, because three of you would be interested, the rest would be bored, but this word in Hebrew, visit, is a loaded term. And that's where this rabbit hole began for me, uh, provoked by what I read. 
Visit signifies a divine intervention for the sake of a blessing or a curse. Visit is a divine intervention to bless or to curse. Keep that in mind. It's not just always good news. In the case of the Exodus, Israel was delivered in a good sense. But it was at the expense of the Egyptians. Make sense? So when God intervened and visited, he's going to punish the Egyptians, but he's going to bless and save the Israelites. Uh, he continues, interesting to note in Genesis, it falls silent on the expectancy of the visitation just as the Old Testament does. In other words, we hear about it in Genesis 50 and then it's, it's off radar. We don't know anything that happens after the close of the Old Testament until the beginning of the New. It's off radar. What are we waiting for? What's this? Who's coming to dinner? We don't know anything about this, but Joseph in his dying words talks about this. He continues, um, believers are convinced their future in God's program lies elsewhere than this current world, but it is part of our pilgrimage in this land. They know that God will visit and deliver his people in spite of death and discouragement. Those who trust in the Lord to bring about his promised blessings in his own inscrutable ways will demonstrate their faith through adverse circumstances of life. He continues, the book ends with the promise unfulfilled, but the expectancy of a visitation from on high. The book ends with the promise. He made a promise, but we die. But there's still hope. There's an expectancy. There's looking forward to something that is going to happen. Well, let's jump ahead and look at some of these verses. And I want you to keep in mind that God visiting his people primarily is going to happen in a dead and hopeless situation. Whether it was in Egypt during the Egyptian captivity and slavery, whether it's, we're going to look at Abraham and Sarah briefly, certain times where God visits because it's hopeless, there's nothing else that's going to fix this unless God shows up, we might say, the language we typically use. God's going to have to intervene. So as Christians, we should not have a foggy hope about this indeterminate future. We should have a confidence, even though our circumstances rarely tell us that. Um, so let's look at these two passages in Genesis very briefly, and then I'm going to take you to look, Luke and show you how this ties together. So this Luke, Genesis 50, where Joseph is on his deathbed, and we read the following, chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you. If you have a real Bible or you take notes, that word take care needs to be circled, underlined, and highlighted. God will take care of you and bring you up from the land, this land, to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying this. So they're, they're repeating it. God will surely take care, there it is again, of you, and, shall care, and you shall carry my bones up from here. A couple of observations. Notice he goes back to Abraham. Uh, he goes back to the Abrahamic covenant because it was through that covenant that what? God was going to bless the world. Joseph's dying and he recalls the Abrahamic covenant. The word take care is the same word visit. So that's where if you're a note-taking person, it will help you if you go back and look at these on your own. So Joseph's on his deathbed. He summarily reminds them of the whole history of how they got where they are today that they are no longer in Egyptian slavery and captivity because Moses was the instrument 
to get them out. Joseph is the youngest son. You know the story. He's in, in, in slavery, in captivity. He becomes second most powerful in Egypt. His incredible storyline, which, by the way, parallels the story of Israel and Egypt. It parallels the story of Jesus Christ. And as he's dying, don't leave my bones here. The image of that is a huge topic. I don't want to be buried in Egypt, even though I spent a lot of my life here. I want to be buried at home. And that's a whole other issue. Now, let's jump. Keep that in mind. Joseph says, God's going to visit you. Hang on to this. He's going to take care of you. He's going to show up while he's dying. Luke chapter 1, the larger passage is about 11 verses, 68 to 78. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to show you the bookends. So you can follow on the screens or in your Bible. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is uh, Zacharias speaking. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. You see the connections already. He's talking about Abraham just as did uh, Joseph. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father, Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, before him all of our days. And you, child, and now he's talking to the baby John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. So now let me compress that and show you these two verses side by side that open and close this section. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us, that's our word, and accomplished redemption for his people. And then it bookends with the same word because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Joseph in his dying breath, God's going to show up. He's going to vi visit you in a situation where death is imminent. There's no other way out. Now we have John the Baptist being born. His father, Zacharias, and you know the backstory. He didn't believe that his wife Elizabeth could get pregnant because they were old. And he's mute until the day he's born. And this becomes what we call the Benedictus. It's an eloquent passage that deserves lots of time in your own devotions. So those are the hinges. So now we have this, this prophet, this priest technically, Zacharias, who's putting this all together. And he's holding a baby boy in his, let's say, his late 80s or 90s that he shouldn't have been able to conceive. Sounds like a Abraham and Sarah story, doesn't it? So unless God shows up, death is imminent. Now, the mention of this anticipated visitation in chapter 50 of Genesis and the mention of it here, the line that Ross uses, the divine intervention will determine our destiny. The divine intervention will determine our destiny. If God, we say in our culture, if he doesn't show up, it's not going to end well. That theme is actually a paratheme of the whole Bible. 
unless God intervenes, there's no hope. And that's what they were looking for, whether it was slavery, whether it was uh, infertility, whether it was disease, whether it was war with surrounding nations, whether it was an evil divided kingdom, a civil war within people groups, there's nothing new. We're 244 years old as a country. We're talking about almost 4,000 years of, of history. And these were the things they were looking forward to, and they remembered their history, which is where we can always improve. Now, the Old Testament's silent. We don't hear much about this until the prophet, the priest Zacharias, speaks these words. So let's see if we can put this together to make some sense for you. And let me do it in three parts. The first is that a redemption has been accomplished. God redeemed his people. And I want to make six quick points from this passage we call the Benedictus. We read, uh, number one, there was praise to God. Number two, there was redemption has come. And you'll hear that in a lot of good hymn lyrics, that the redemption has arrived. God accomplished redemption for his people. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. I know you perhaps tire of me talking about these two passages. You need to know Genesis 12, 15, 17, 19. You need to know 2 Samuel 7, 13 and following. You need to know those passages because that was the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Those are, they cannot be changed. They're covenants God made that cannot be changed, which is why we believe Messiah comes all the way from the promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah from this lineage. David, there will never lack a Messiah on the throne of David. It's, it's a wonderful wordplay. Jesus has always been king. He's still going to be king, and he'll be king in the future. No one's going to kick Jesus off his throne. Uh, during this political mayhem we have watched uh, the last months or if you want to go back three or four years now i have to remind myself michael ain't no king on the planet ain't no king on the planet and i i, I like some of you worry about how this affects our children and grandchildren you're really getting old when you say that but that's how i feel i remember my parents saying things like that i don't know what the world's gonna be like for you young people i don't know what it's gonna be like for you and i look at my grandchildren i don't know what it's gonna be like for you Nothing changes, right? The older you get, you learn these things. Um, but you, you got to have the, I know I harp on it. I know I repeat myself. You need to have in your head this history of theology that the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral covenant, the Davidic covenant, unilateral, the new covenant, unilateral. Jesus fulfills it. He's coming back, period. There's one king, one king. Doesn't matter what world powers do. Uh, then, of course, Zacharias, in his beautiful Benedictus, we call it, talks about the deliverance, the horn of salvation. And deliverance primarily was from your enemy, but it was also a double wordplay. You're saved, you're delivered from death, but you're delivered from your enemy. Most people feared their enemy in, in antiquity more than dying. And then the preparation of John's ministry. And this is, he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to be that buffer from that silent Old Testament period until the New Testament comes. Messiah's promised. Now we're going to have these two babies six months apart. John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner. And now the silence is broken when John the Baptist will come on the scene. And then finally, the goal is this great deliverance, which goes all the way back to what Joseph was talking about on his deathbed. Keep in mind, the word visitation has a positive and a negative spin to it. 
It's positive for those who are being saved. It's negative for those who are being judged. When God shows up, it's not always only a parade. When God shows up, that sword has got two edges to it. The word Hebrew word chesed or loving kindness in your New America Standard or steadfast love in your ESV uh, is a two-edged sword. For God to administer justice to those who are victims, he must administer justice to those who were the perpetrators. He must deal with the guilty and punish them. That's his nature. So this word visit, most time in your Bible, it's in the English Bible, it's translated from a parent word. I won't bore you with, but it's, it's the word episkeptomai, episkeptomai, episkeptomai. We you know the word episcopal. We know the word episkosis, skos, looking over scope. A bishop is called an episcopal. So one of the terms for elders, presbyteros, is the Presbyterian version, uh, episkopos. Both those words are interchangeable in the New Testament. Episcopos, the one who oversees the congregation. This word, this visiting word, is a wonderful word, which is why it became a rabbit hole for me. Because what the text is telling us is this gracious visitation is he's overlooking things to show up to fix it. But that comes with two edges. All right, let's continue on here because I, I, I'm losing you. I can tell by your looks on your face. Uh, let's talk about the response of the visit. What happens when he shows up? What did the Old Testament believer understand? What did the New Testament person understand? Uh, in the Old Testament, when God showed up, they were wanting him to intervene for their enemies or help in their illnesses or deliver them from slavery, whatever. But the negative impact, of course, was present. In the New Testament, the same is true. In Luke chapter 19, 44, uh, Jesus talks about he came to his own, his own knew him not. They rejected him. Th he showed up to help them. We don't want anything to do with you. Nothing has changed. Cindy and I uh, have to restrain our conversations about politics. Because we just, our blood pressure just goes up as we talk about it. We agree, but it's just, we, and I go, what are we accomplishing we're wasting time and energy and good words. Um, and when I, when I think about God showing up and God bringing judgment, that's a hard pill to swallow. But there's also a comfort that somebody's going to make it right. Somebody's going to make it right. When we lived in D.C. and Northern Virginia for almost 12 years, um, the, what we call the deep state, Today, in those days, we, we just called the bureaucracy. Because men and women who work in these agencies can't be fired. And once you have a position in the federal government, you know, you can be right, left, independent, you can be green, you can be whatever, it doesn't matter, you can't be fired. Those jobs are eternally secure. And over time, you hire after your kind. So agencies have great division in them. But that world, and when you live in that world, the so-called beltway mindset, you think you're going to make a difference. They call that Potomac fever. You think you're going to make a difference. And when you drive away from it, your stress level goes down, your blood pressure goes down, your cholesterol goes down, you lose weight. I mean, it's a remarkable thing. When you live there, it's a cauldron, and it is the center of the world. Economically, politically, militarily, it's the center, power center of the planet. So it's heady. And you get all spun up in these things, and you get all worked up about them. And you think, 
well, whose side is God on? Which is the wrong question to ask. But the point of this is it, when he shows up, there's no one who's going to be elected to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue who's going to be able to show up and fix it. That doesn't mean we cave. That doesn't mean we live in fear. But what it means for Michael is, Michael, recalibrate. Who's king? Don't get seduced by the political power of the day. Israel, don't be seduced by the Egyptian allure. Israel, don't be seduced by other nations that seem to have wealth and power. Don't be seduced by filling in the blank. Trust me, because when I show up, even my own people rejected me. The people I came to save threw me out. That should help us in our thinking, maybe not necessarily our emotions. Anyway, in Luke 1, Zacharias looks forward to something. Just like Joseph died looking forward to something, this divine intervention that would determine our destiny. And Joseph dies with faith knowing that one day God's going to show up. Same thing in Luke chapter 1. Zacharias, who's now mute, paralleling, I would argue, the quietness of the Bible from this announcement to when he opens his mouth in belief and he speaks the Benedictus, he sees God's visitation. He showed up and my son, not the doctor, my son, John the Baptist, is going to be the one that goes out there. How well is the Baptist going to be received? Not so well. Not so well. He's going to live in the wilderness eating locusts and honey. I guess that's a clean diet, whatever turns you on. I don't know. He also understood that this divine intervention was going to bring about a destiny. Now, the final point, landing point of this, Revelation. There's actually several verses. I just want to show you two because of time. Chapter 22, verse 7, Revelation. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, chapter 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to everyone, every man, according to what he has done. So this is the visitation actualized or realized. They looked forward to it. What did it mean? It was announced clearly at John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' coming. Now, what's it look like when it actually happens? Or to say a different way, God's going to come fix this mess. We're going to die probably without seeing it. Here's some markers along the way to remind you that God has not forgotten his promises. This is what it's going to be like when Messiah comes, and here he is right now, and you're going to reject him and kill him. But this is how it ends. Who's coming for dinner? Who's coming for Christmas? The man who can fix everything. The man who can heal disease, who can create new eyes to a congenitally blind person, who can walk on water, who can come back from the dead, who can grant forgiveness of sins, who can solve the political condition with a word. That's the king we need to recalibrate that's born to die that we might live. Jesus stresses that there's going to be blessings to those who anticipate his return. And this is a hard one uh, for me. Um, we'll talk about this in the lessons. But Joseph had this view of God that most of us don't have. Abraham had a view of God most of us don't have. David had a view of God. I think I love about David. We all love about David. He had some pretty atrocious sins. But he's what? Called a man for God's own heart. That, that ought to encourage every one of us. Because all of us have some pretty dark sin in our soul 
in our history we don't want people to know about. And here is David who sins on parade for everybody to see in full color and movies and books and you know and on on it will go poor guy illustrative of he loved a man who when he was called out for his sin repented he loved a man who when confronted with what he'd done wrong owned it and did what he could to be restored a man who sinned terribly and lost a lot because of his sin but God still loved and that's the throne on which the Messiah has and will reign forever. Well, let's talk about two lessons briefly. Number one, we must reframe our worldview. Uh, and, and I'm speaking this more to Michael easily than perhaps you, because some of you perhaps do this better than me. I don't mean that to sound cheeky or, or uh, condescending. Um, I'm, I'm too focused on the here and now. I am too focused on the here and now, the I, me, my of life. My cup of coffee, in my cup, in my chair, at my desk, with my books, with my computer, with my world. I, 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 me, my. That's my comfort zone. And to think about a worldview where Christ is king and will return, that's a, you know, that doesn't come up to, you know, point one, two, three of the day. It comes in when I study it and I go, Michael, you got to recalibrate. All kinds of verses that will remind us of this. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 13, looking for the blessed hope and his appearing. Philippians 3, 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior. This is during the New Testament after Jesus has died, Paul writing. You can't live on high alert all day long. You can't wake up every day and say, Maranatha, Lord, come, and it's going to be the day, and I'm living faithful today. Jesus could, he might come before lunchtime. I'd like to get a good bite. But, but you know, that's okay if he comes. We, we can't live on high alert, but we're told to. That's a tension for me. Um, some of us are old enough to remember a fixation on the signs of the times and the end times. Uh, I've been going to Israel for many, many years, and invariably it comes up about the cornerstone. And where's the cornerstone? We have a former astronaut who has been involved for most of his post-astronaut life trying to find the ark and be involved with the temple complex being rebuilt. And God bless him. I have nothing against it. But I find it fascinating that there's this fixation at different times. Uh, I, I won't name names, but when a certain person was elected to office uh, many, many years ago, uh, uh, someone I live with said, he must be the Antichrist. Well, you know. Um, I think Hitler must have been the Antichrist. I don't think you could have lived in the 40s as a Christian and not wondered, was Hitler the Antichrist? I mean, goodness gracious, six to seven million Jews. You had to, as a Christian, wonder, is this the end? When 9-11 happened, you know, the, chess, the, the theological chessboard, what's the end times going to be? And some of you are not old enough to worry about this, and that's fine. It's, it's your cultural time. It's your history. But my point is, these things come and go, and we get fixated on what's going to happen, and when it's going to happen, and what's it look like. I remember going to conferences, pre, post, you know, mill, you know, pre-wrath, rapture, you know, ah mill, no mill, post mill, you know, literal thousand years, on and on the debates continue, and they always will. And the old joke is, it doesn't matter, all pans out in the end, pan millennial, it's a bad joke, but... How do you and I stay on high alert all the time to keep watch for him? 
Our hope is pinned on the promise of God's word, not my experience. That's the best I can do. My hope is pinned on the promise in his word, not your or my experiences. Politically, financially, morally, culturally. What happens if America is a shell of what it was in the greatest generation? What happens if America becomes a socialist country? What happens if America is completely turned over and changed? God is not pacing heaven floor, wringing his hands. I'm sorry to inform you. There is no cross that has a flag wrapped around it unless it's a bad piece of art in the church. The throne of Jesus Christ does not salute or stand up when the flag is risen or folded or put over a tomb. And that's part of our indoctrination. My hope is pinned on the promise of God's word, not on the experiences or reading some theological tea leaves of the future. Secondly, God's program is our pilgrimage. We're, we're in a particular point in history. Um, do, do you ever wonder, I'm, I'm weird, you know that by now. Do you ever wonder why you were born this time? Uh, I love Westerns. Anyone love Westerns like me? You know, I love Westerns. A few godly people here. Uh, I love Westerns, and I study Westerns. And I've read, I took a course in college on the American Western. We had all these books, and we watched 11 John Wayne movies. I got a C. I mean, it's terrible. Um, it's true. Uh, but to understand why the American Western had such a lore and an attraction for so many people, Good guys wear white hats. Bad guys wear black hats. You knew who was right, who was wrong. The storyboard you could do on a three-by-five card. All of them were the same. And there's something about comfort. And I often wonder, what if I'd have been, you know, lived during that time? What would I have been like? Would I have been a sheriff? Would I have been a preacher? God help me. Uh, you know, what, what would you have been? It's a silly question, is it not? Because you're born now. You and I are here today. Our life is a vapor. We're part of this pilgrimage. God knew before the foundation of the world when you and I would be of age in this age. Promise that God's going to deliver. The promise God's work is going to be on time. God is going to accomplish his will. There's no way to stop God's word and God's will. Period. Can't stop it. But do we believe that? The biggest promise is even if we die, we live. These are big things. I mean, they're hard to, you know, keep in our head. You know, we, we used to teach about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He may be morning it, maybe noon it, maybe evening it, maybe soon he's coming again. You ever seen that song? I always felt like, you know, roller skates to sing that song. It was just kind of a skating ring song. He's coming again, he's coming again. And I, I, think, I go, I don't, you know, I say the words, I don't really believe it. It's a really bad theological joke, and no one ever laughs at it, so you're absolved from fake laughter. I say, I believe in the imminent return of Jesus, just not in my lifetime. That's how I operate. So I have to focus on his promise, on his word, not my circumstance. And I have to remind myself, I'm part of a program. I'm a pilgrim in a program. And you and I have a role to play. Um. Matthew Henry is a fascinating character. Some of you Bible nerds might know the name. Um, his uh, massive commentary, uh, I think, was north of, uh, I want to say, 5,500 pages. And he had a, a, the concise commentary is only 1,306 pages. 
Uh, he was born in 1662. Let me give you some stats on this guy. Um, October 18th, 1662, outside of Wales, mainly homeschooled by his father, the Reverend Philip Henry. By age nine, he was proficient in Latin and New Testament Greek. Booyah for homeschool. He started out studying law, but changed. He became fluent in French and literature as a side subject, and then he would go to study law, and after a period of law school, he decided to study grace. He became a pastor. He was ordained at age 26. His ordination papers that you presented were written in Latin, like a thesis. His first marriage lasted barely over a year to a woman named Catherine Hardware. What a name. She gave birth to a daughter. Uh, the daughter, uh, she died of smallpox uh, soon after, and the daughter died 15 months later. The next year, he married a second time. He's 27 now. The first child, second child, third child, all died in infancy. Uh, of the nine children they would ultimately have, uh, it's, the history is a little sketchy here. It seems five lived to see adulthood. Remember, the 1600s, people died of a lot of things. He didn't live that old. By, 18, uh, by 1686, at 24, he starts preaching in his neighborhood. And he became what was called a nonconformist pastor in the Presbyterian Church. And that's not like a cool title, but the history behind it is too involved to get into. But it just sounds cool. He's a nonconformist pastor. I'd like to be called a nonconformist pastor. And he was in a church in Chester, England for most of his ministry life. Uh, he was invited again and again and again to come to the big city and do things. But he stayed there and wrote the six-volume exposition on the Old and New Testaments that are public domain, by the way. You don't have to buy these things. 1662, nobody's got the rights for it anymore. All that to say, in his commentary on Genesis, on these two verses I read you at the beginning, listen to what he writes, and you have to put your thinking cap on, and I'm almost done. The language he used in 1660s to write this, 1680s to write this. This is about these two verses about Joseph, Okay. After discovering these things to his people on earth. Let me stop for a minute. I love that language. Not after telling them, Joseph, after discovering these things. It's just delicious. I love it. After discovering these things to his people on earth, Christ seems to take leave of them and return to heaven. But he assures them that it shall not be long before he comes again. And while we are busy in the duties of our different situations in life, whatever labors may try us, whatever difficulties may surround us, whatever sorrows may press us down, it, it, nothing's changed. I want you to see that. Nothing has changed, right? Your problems and mine are not new or unique. Let us pleasure hear our Lord proclaiming, behold, I come quickly. I come to put an end to the labor and suffering of my servants. I come and my reward of grace is with me to recompense with royal bounty every work of faith and labor of love. I come to receive my faithful, persevering people to myself to dwell forever in that blissful world. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. A blessing closes the whole. By the grace of Christ, we must be kept in joyful expectation of his glory. Can you choke that down for a minute? By the grace of Christ, we must be kept in joyful 
expectation of the glory. Who's coming to dinner? Who's coming to Christmas? The king of the universe. Fitted for it, preserved to it, and his glorious appearance will be joyful to those who partake of his grace and favor here. Let all add amen. Let us earnestly thirst after greater measures of the gracious influences of the blessed Jesus in our, in our souls and his gracious presence with us to glory has made perfect his grace toward us. Glory be to the Father, say it with me, and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, ever shall be, world without end.